Father, we thank you again and praise you again that we get to come and worship you. And we know that it is by your good grace, your redemption through the work of your son that we are delivered to worship. We praise you that you are worthy of worship. There is nothing in us deserving of coming to worship you, but everything in you is worthy of our praise and our honor and your glory. And we ask that you would receive the praises from our lips as, as mixed with sin as they are. We pray that you would bring glory to your son by sinful people bringing praises to you. We thank you that you have delivered us for not just this task, but for this joy to worship you with your people, to make your name great on this earth by pointing to how great you are. Father, we, we do ask, as we have sung, that you would be our vision, O Lord of our hearts. God, we, we want the prayer to be true that uh, no possessions, not even the praise of man would be our glory, but you and you alone. So fill up our vision until we are assured and satisfied in you. God, we, we come to you and acknowledge you as the only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe you answer prayers, and so we come to you now uh, according to your will to, to ask our Father through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, to to make our request known to you that you might glorify yourself and do good to us. And so, God, we pray for endurance. We, we feel the, um, the heaviness of long schedules and the weightiness of busyness in our lives. And we ask that you would help us to endure with gladness that you would help us to serve the Lord with gladness and you'd give us joy as we, we endure this busy season of life and fall always seems to be busy and we ask that you, you would help us. For those who are in school and projects are weighing down on them or they have just come out of a season of, of busyness with midterms, we pray that you would help. We ask that through your loving kindness you would give energy, perseverance and endurance that we might do our work according uh, to godliness. And Father, for those who are, are, are working in this world and even in this city, we pray for those who are finding work frustrating, sometimes boring. We pray that you would help us to endure to the end, to, to see you as our great delight. And as we work, we would work for you. God, our work would become an act of worship that you might be glorified and, and you might help us endure to the end. God, I pray for those who are teaching our young ones this morning, that they would show them Christ, that those young people who will sit under your word, God, you would give them faith and repentance, that they might respond to you with joy and to see you as all satisfying. God, we pray for, for encouragement for the teachers and in our TWIGS program, that you would give them clarity and kindness and patience and gentleness as they teach. God, for those who are parenting and finding it difficult, a difficult joy to parent children through this, this 
time of, uh, of struggle and, and hardship and sin as we are on this journey, I pray that you would give them help. Give us help as we point our children to you. And as, as we do this, even as a church, you would help us to bring those under our care, this, the, the nurture and ad, admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, and I, I pray even as the winter sets in, you would help us endure looking to you who is the author and finisher of our faith who even, even made the weather. We pray that you would, you would help us to, to look to you and not our feelings. That we would look to you and, 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 and not the, the times of plenty. We would look to you, the giver of the good gifts. God, we ask that you would help us to endure to the end, knowing, setting our, our hope on you that you have come to dwell with your people through your, your spirit. God, as we open your word, we are thankful we're not the only gospel work, gospel church, preaching church in, in this region. And God, we thank you for the other churches that do preach the gospel, and we pray that you give them courage and, and faith and strength to preach the gospel and be Christ-centered and focused on bringing people the message of salvation, pure and undefiled, that they would open your word and those pastors in our town would be, would be clear about who you are from the scriptures and how we should respond. And so I pray that you would, you would bless the gospel partners in this town. God, we thank you for the time that we get to open your word together for such a short time, and I pray that you would help us to see Christ. You would, you would help us to, to look to him as our only hope in life and death. And I pray the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock, our redeemer, the one who dwells with us, in Christ's name. Amen. So our journey through the story of Exodus from Egypt comes to an end today. Uh, it's Exodus is one grand episode in the grand story of redemption. And I hope we've, we have seen that as we've gone through it. We started in September of 2021, and we've taken some breaks along the way. I hope that's obvious. But uh, as we have come to our conclusion now, of this one episode, we come to its conclusion and the beginning of another one. This story, this grand story is about God delivering his people, redeeming his people so they might worship him. And what a story it is. Egypt, who had once delivered God's people from a famine, now becomes their oppressor. Israel went from deliverance to enslavement. Exodus is their story of going from enslavement to deliverance for worship. Moses, who led them out from the dark cloud of providence, is now leading them to the glory cloud of his presence. And this is where the story of Exodus begins. God dwelling in the midst of his people. God dwelling among his people. But it is also where a new story begins. God begins again that he might dwell with his people. That's the main point I want you to, we want to take away from this section is God begins again 
that he might dwell with his people. He's going to dwell with his people in the tabernacle. We've spent lots of weeks thinking about the furniture of the tabernacle and the construction of the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle is complete and we get to look back and say, God is beginning a new thing again. But God is beginning something new that he might dwell with his people. So his new beginning starts with a rerun of his instructions for the tabernacle. And we got up to Exodus chapter uh, 25, and we started all these instructions about the tabernacle, its furniture, and the priests, and you might have thought boring. Uh, but as we have seen, it all pictures our great Savior, Jesus Christ, and the redemption he, he wrought through the cross. So now we come to the end of Exodus, and we're rerunning his instructions. It's a rerun of, of all of his instructions. And God is basically saying, I'm never going to give you up. I'm never going to let you down. I'm never going to run around and desert you. No, you have not been rickrolled, okay? I promise. But God is saying that. He's coming to dwell with his people, and he's saying, I am not going to leave you or forsake you, ever. Exodus chapter 40, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Israel has now been out of Egypt for almost a year, and they are coming up to their second celebration of the, of the Passover. The first was in Egypt, if you remember, back in the early chapters of, of Exodus. The Passover festival was celebrated in Egypt while they were still slaves, and God brought one last plague on the people of Egypt, the death of the firstborn. They celebrated the Passover, and then they left. And God now wants to dwell among his people for this second celebration as free people. So he summarizes the instructions given to Moses. This is very important. God wants to be worshiped a certain way and is clear about how they are to worship him, that he might dwell with them. So he graciously gives them the command of how to build their tabernacle. He graciously commands them. So God's dwelling place is given by command, a, a loving command. And there's gonna be a couple of slides so you can just see how the, how the one, once again, how the tabernacle, the tent of meetings was set up while I read, uh, or while I summarize. Just notice that the furniture, God first gives the, the furniture, again, he tells them again in verse, in, in verse three, and you shall put in it the ark of testimony. That's the tabernacle, you erect the, the tent, and inside the tent, the holy of holies is gonna be the ark of the testimonies, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. It's inside that holy of holies, the, the veiled place, the ark of the covenant, or the testimony was put, is where God chose to make his glory dwell and the table of presence and the lampstand and the altar of incense and the holy place in verses four and five if you go outside the priest would go from the holy place and uh, the holy of holies into the holy place in verses four and five there you would see the table of bread the lampstand and the altar of incense before the veil and the altar of burnt offering 
at the front of, uh, of the encampment and uh, of the front of the, of the, t- of the tent of, of meetings. And in between the tent of meetings and the altar was the basin. Between the altar and the tent of meetings, uh, the, the basin was so that they could wash up before they went into the holy place. And they were to put water in it, verses 6 and 7. And the courtyard and the screen of the gate was to separate it from the rest of the encampment. Then in verses 9 through 15, God not only commanded the furniture that would show, uh, that, that would show God's, God's plan for them to, to dwell with him and to be forgiven of their sins, but now God wants them to consecrate the, the very priests and the furniture for the Lord's use. So in verses 9 through 15, then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may, be, may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water. And put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve as a priest. As priest, you shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout, throughout their generations. This is God's word. So just as a, as a summary, the anointing oil was, was not special. It's not special in and of itself, but it, is, it signified that something or someone was set apart for God and holy set apart from common use to use to be you to the use God has for it so the tabernacle all its furniture and the priests were to be anointed with oil setting them apart as as God's particular instruments to show forth his redemption of his people God is coming to dwell with man but it was, and as we said, it was not only the things that were anointed, it consecrated the priests were also anointed. Even their, their clothing, the priests had to first be washed clean. And then God was providing the priesthood for those so they could minister as a go-between between the, 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 to represent the people to God. It was perpetual. It was year after year because they would continue to need it, verse 15. God is making something new. And if, you, if you'll read through Exodus 40 again, maybe this afternoon, you'll notice that the Lord said, the Lord said. And there's, there's some parallel to Genesis 1 and 2 as, as God is commanding a new thing to be made. And I think that we're, we're meant to see this tabernacle as, as, as some new beginnings. How, how will people like Adam and Eve and those connected to them be redeemed? Is God going to, to do away with humanity or is he going to make them new? And the temple, the tabernacle is showing us that God is making things new again. And the Lord said, and the Lord said, and the Lord said, and, 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 the, and the people obeyed. He has commanded this to happen. It's a a loving command. God's gonna dwell with his people and then he gives commands in order for it to happen. This loving command. Now the question is, will the people obey? 
as a sign of their repentance. The last time they were put to the test, they failed miserably. Moses the mediator, but Moses the mediator does what the Lord commands. You remember that Cameron preached for us Exodus 32, and, and as Moses goes up to the mountain to, to, to talk with God in the glory cloud that's up on the mountain, the people are down below and become impatient and can't wait for him and disobey his very first commands, and, and, and their priest, Aaron, makes a calf, and they give honor to the calf instead of the Lord God. And the Lord God is angry, as he should be. Now the question is, what's going to happen now? God has given the commands, he's repeated the instructions, what is going to happen? Exodus 40, verse 16 This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it. As the Lord had commanded Moses, he took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark and he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of screen and he screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the, in, in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite of the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in the place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set up the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. He erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. This is God's word. Did you pick out the phrase that is repeated? As the Lord had commanded, you can say it, Moses. There you go. There are, there, so there are several things significant, I think, about this why is he repeating this phrase? What's the point of it all? It's repeated eight times. See, Moses stands as the representative of the people. We're not meant to think that Moses did everything, but Moses was commanded. Moses led these people to do this. The people did it, and so Moses did it. He's representing them. And this, is, this obedience is a sign of repentance over the golden calf disaster. God is... God wants them to obey him for their good. The obedience of the people is the way they are going to enjoy their redemption, going to enjoy the presence of God. 
Now, we, we must get this straight, dear friends, that obedience has not redeemed them. God already redeemed them out of Egypt. He freed them. He, he set them free. He set them free from their captivity to, to Egypt and their enslavement to the Egyptians and Pharaoh. But now he's giving them a code to live by. He's redeemed them, and now he's saying, obey. It's never the other way around. He never says, obey, that you might be redeemed. He says, you are redeemed, so obey. He freed them. Now he's wanting them to enjoy their salvation, their redemption, by obeying him. Friends, we will never enjoy the salvation God has for us apart from our obedience to the Lord. This, this brings us to an important principle in the Christian life in understanding salvation. Obedience to the law can never make anyone right before God. See Romans chapter three if you have questions about that. There's only one person who could obey that law perfectly. However, being made right with God produces obedience. Obedience in the Christian life is tied to our enjoyment of the Christian life. We don't want to get it backwards. I don't want you to, to go inward and, and think about, oh, how are all the ways I'm disobeying God and, and therefore I'm not a Christian? No, that's not it. But because God has saved us by his kindness and his grace, he is telling that us obedience is the natural fruit of our redemption in him. Doing all that the Lord commands is meant to lead to their joy. Dwelling with God will dwell with them. Once the tabernacle is built, once you fulfill all that God is going to dwell with them, that's, it, that's meant to lead to joy, not discouragement. It's a sign of repentance as they obey and as you obey. But for some of us, obedience or our disobedience to the law actually leads us to discouragement. I wonder why that is. I, I think there are probably a few reasons why obeying God's commands that are meant to lead to joy actually is discouraged. It's discouraging to us. For one, I think that we have a low view of, maybe you have a low view of the law. That is, you see the law as a burden and not a command that leads to joy. You have a, you have a low view of God's law. And maybe you, you see some of Jesus' words in the Gospels as him having a low view of the law. But he, he does not have a low view of the law, friends. He came to fulfill the law, not to set it aside. The, the law is not meant for your saving, but meant for your enjoyment of your salvation. So maybe you just see it as a burden. The law is a burden, I'm going to put it away. It has nothing to do with the Christian life. Friends, I, I want to argue to you that I think that might be leading to your discouragement when, it's, when obeying the law is meant to lead to your joy. Uh, maybe another reason you might be discouraged when it comes to obeying God's law is because you have too high view of, the, of, of obedience to the law. Uh, or... Uh, that's just a contrast to low, but it, maybe your view is not high enough. But you, you think that the law is something that brings salvation. But the law can never bring salvation. It cannot bring salvation to sinners unless it's kept perfectly whole. And we all know in thought, word, and deed, even this morning, maybe even this hour, we have sinned. We've already broken it. 
and you are laboring under the burden of keeping an, of an already broken law, and you think that unless you keep the law perfectly, it's going to lead to salvation, but it can never lead you to salvation, dear friend. And this may be why some people turn away from Christianity, because they see it as merit-based. If it's just gotten fed up with it, because they, they know they, they haven't kept the law, they can't keep the law, and they see it as too burdensome. And maybe we have taught them that by our own view of the law. But maybe there's a, th- a third category in there that is, is connected to these, is that we have this view that law-keeping is legalism. And as some of you are looking at me like you have that view. <laughs> like, uh, Doug, I, I'm not sure about this. We talk about grace all the time, and now you're talking about law-keeping. We all know that legalism is bad. Can I get an amen? All right, amen. I'll give it to myself. We all know legalism is bad. And therefore we think, so keeping, law-keeping is bad. Friends, that is a fallacy. God's law is good and just. So keeping God's law is good and just and leads to joy and happiness. You just cannot keep it if you're outside of Christ. And if you're inside of Christ, you find yourself struggling like Paul uh, to, to, to be able to keep the law or not keep the law. And you, you wonder, is, is my keeping of the law uh, something that earns my salvation? It is not, and it is not legalism. The law is good and just reflects God's character. Jesus Christ himself kept the law perfectly. His positive obedience, his active obedience, he earned that in your place. And sometimes we think, okay, great, well, I don't have to keep the law. No, he, he, he offers salvation, dies in your place to take your sin and gives, imputes to you his righteousness so that you can start, have this, to, start to have this joy and, and, and happiness of obeying the law. Now, friends, here, here's, just, here, here's an example of how obeying God's law or trying to follow God's law as best we can does actually lead to some, does lead to joy. A study done by sociologist Brad Wilcox at the University of Virginia. He, he studies marriage and families. And, and he studied, he wanted to find out uh, who, who were the happiest families. Who were the happiest, actually, wives. So they went to wives and, and, and asked lots of questions about who were the happy, happiest uh, of wives in terms of sociology. And his findings were published in the New York Times. So this isn't like a, you know, this isn't some conservative right-wing thing that Doug is bringing up in order to prove a point. What, what he found was that the happiest wives, 72% of the, the happiest wives were in marriages with evangelical men who lived out what they believed. That, that is to say, they were not nominal, they weren't Christians in name only. They said they believed in all, all the fundamentals, the, the virgin birth of Christ, all, all of those things. The, the Bible is truly God's word. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. Uh, they believed these things, and they backed it up by going to church regularly. Now, 72% were, were the happiest, uh, the, the, of the wives were, were the happiest, had the happiest marriages. The least happy were, married, were wives in marriages with men who said they were Christians but didn't act on their beliefs. They, they reported the least satisfaction and had the highest rates of abuse, even more than secular men. Friends, it, it turns out, even as in a sociologist study like this, which is not perfect, by the way, it turns out that 
obeying God's law does bring you some joy. It is actually good for your marriage. I just want us to see that this obedience to God's law through Moses and through the people was an expression of their repentance over the golden calf incident. But even as you look through it and you read through it, there seems to still be a dark cloud hovering over that. I think these people are gonna do it again. But it was a true act of repentance and, and, and their law keeping, their, their, the tabernacle was completed because they obeyed the command, this loving command of God. What is hard is that we all, like the Israelites, do not keep the law perfectly. We have our golden calf moments, and worse than that. But God, Exodus 34, God reveals his character is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not clear the guilty or let sin go unpunished. So he is both just and merciful. He has decided that he would dwell with his people and he is making it happen. He he has done so by a loving command. And it is, the tabernacle is coming together by obedience to that command. Moses the prophet, the meteor, does each step and the glory doesn't come down. He puts the ark in the holy of holies and the glory doesn't come down. He puts a lampstand and the altar of incense and the bread of presence in the holy place and the glory doesn't come down. He puts the altar of burnt offering at the front of the, of the tent and the glory doesn't come down. He puts the basin for washing in between the tent and the altar and the glory doesn't come down. He set up the screen of the gate of the court so Moses, Moses finished the work. And what happened? The glory came down. The work was finished. And the glory came down. Now the tabernacle that was commanded by God's loving instruction was completed by the people's obedience is now inhabited by the glory of God. Exodus 40, 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the Lord was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. The cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is God's word. Philip Ryken says, the cloud of God's glory was a theophany, a visible manifestation of the invisible God. God's glory is the, the weightiness of his divine being the infinite perfection of his triune deity. Glory is the whole godness of God. But on occasion, God has made his glory visible in a resplendent cloud of radiant light. And here he comes down in a resplendent cloud of radiant light that was once on the mountain, far away from God's people, is now right in the middle, in the midst of his people. 
And if you could see how the encampment was set up around the tent of meeting, it was all the camps by name were set up around the tent of meeting, all facing towards it. And here now God is, after the work is completely finished, God dwells with his people. God comes down to dwell with his people, and this was his whole point. I will be your God, and you will be my people. His glory is among them, but something shocking happens. The way is blocked, verse 35. Not even God's chosen mediator could enter into the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And and it, it ends here, basically, without a resolution. God has come down, but the way is blocked. So God, what are you going to do? You, you came to dwell with your people, but now they can't get access to you. Why? And the resolution doesn't come until Leviticus 9. Moses commanded Aaron to make the sacrifice for himself and the people. And Aaron obeys God, uh, Moses' command, and God accepts his offering. And then we read in Leviticus 9, verse 23. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Friends, there is no entrance into the tabernacle without the blood. And here in, in this perpetual state of, in, in, the sta- in Israel's perpetual state, they had to do it year after year, animal after animal. But we see and these, are only, these are only shadows and types pointing to a, a, a greater one who would not have to make sacrifice for himself but would make but would become the sacrifice for his people and would offer himself on the altar before God for God and it is through his blood that we enter into the most holy place and have a dwelling place with God once and for all Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats can never finally do it. They're only pointers and types and shadows pointing to one who would come. That is our Lord Jesus Christ who came to dwell among us. The place of God's dwelling with man was given by command, completed by obedience, and inhabited by glory. But it wasn't, it wasn't static. The glory moved and the people were to move along with it. So the glory was bringing them, as, as, as you show, even though the way was blocked, God's glory would lead them on and through all of their journeys onto the promised land. The glory was bringing them to the promised land, another type and shadow of the glorious salvation that God gives his people. And friends, Jesus Christ is the final and only mediator between God and man. He came to dwell with his people, not in a tent made of fabric, but of human flesh. He dwelt among us. And John says, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The ark of the testimony pointed to him. He was the true mercy seat, the propitiation because he, is, he not only fulfilled the law, but he stood between the broken law and the judgment of God on behalf of man. He is the altar of incense, bringing God's, the prayers of God's saints before God himself. He is the light of the world, the bread of life, the one whose blood washes away the sins of the world. He's the true sacrificial offering that makes us right before God forever. 
And even now, he dwells with us by his spirit. Will, will he dwell with you? Like he dwelt, dwelt with the Israelites on their journey to the promised land. And we remember in, in Jesus' discourse with his disciples, towards the end of his life, in John 14, 15 through 21, he says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Get a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, dear friends, if you are a disciple of Jesus, that same spirit that dwelt with the disciples dwells with you. God makes a new beginning by dwelling with his people. It was, it was given by command, completed by obedience, and inhabited by glory. And all the way to the promised land, the glory leads God's people. Friends, this is the God who delivers his people that they might worship him. If you have turned to him in faith and repentance, have joined together through Christ to this salvation, this is you. He has redeemed you that you might worship him. Worship him with gladness. Oh Lord, our Lord, we pray that you would finish this work in our hearts. God, as you have delivered us to worship, you've redeemed us for worship as your people, the people of God. Help us to worship you Help us to worship you through, through our lives of obedience to you. And oh God, please help us not to look to our works of righteousness for our justification, but to look to you and you alone. And pray that you would encourage the obedience of this church as your people in all things. We pray this in Christ's name.